Hey, and welcome to Rewatch. My name is Seth Scruggs. And I'm Zach Vaughn. And this is the show about movies we love and movies we haven't seen yet. Zach, we're back. We're back after a year plus, probably. Yeah, well well over a year it's been since we sat down and did this. Uh, how are you? I'm good. You say that like we haven't been interacting <laughs> since... Yeah, then. since... September like we haven't even like been working on projects since then that's true that's true like we didn't watch one of these movies together <laughs> that's two true. nights ago so uh if you are not familiar with rewatch the way that this show works uh we it's a movie swap i i pick a movie that i love or have seen or maybe i don't like it a lot uh, and just want to subject zach to it and that he hasn't seen and then he picks one that i haven't seen we watch them and we talk about them we're switching up the format a little bit last season so-called season that we did we talked about we talked about one movie per episode this time we're going to go for two uh so it'll be a true movie swap uh and over the next 12 episodes or so we'll talk about 24 ish movies and it's super exciting and we're glad to be back doing this uh and we're gonna head off this episode with a choice of zach's so zach tell me about the movie that you chose i chose the one the only lawrence of arabia um all four hours of it all four hours well let's see all three hours 48 minutes of it specifically (laughs) uh it's the uh, Academy Award winner for Best Picture in 1962 when it was released. Uh, it's directed by David Lean, um, starring Peter O'Toole and Obi-Wan Kenobi himself, Alec Guinness. <laughs> I'm sure that Alec Guinness would be really glad that his legacy is Obi-Wan Kenobi. He was actually really upset that that was his legacy. Oh, I know. I think that, yeah. Poor guy. But you know what? We love you. He's Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah. So, uh, kind of. I mean, a, a basic plot outline for this movie is T. E. Lawrence is a soldier, an English soldier in Saudi. I mean, what is now Saudi Arabia, and he kind of runs this revolt and kind of it becomes corrupted with power over the course of that time, and it's kind of worshipped a bit as a god um among these people uh kind of sees himself as a messiah figure um obviously it's one of the great movies of all time but why is this why why pick this movie to talk about on a podcast well i mean there's a couple different aspects to why i chose it one was because we wanted to start this season off with like a grand with grand movies. And so I thought the grandest movie in scale that I've seen and loved was Lawrence of Arabia. Like it's took over a year to shoot. It had, it had to be thousands of extras. Um, it's just so huge. It's got like, it's 
It's massive. Um, and it's, it's the kind of movie that I, I watched it for the first time um, on a screen far too small for it. Um, and I was still enraptured by it. And so like that just goes to show that it was, it was just crafted in a way that each shot still took my attention. Each performance still held my focus. And um, after watching it, I quickly decided that this was my favorite long movie. <laughs> long with like seven O's. Um, like I have a, I have a, a list on Letterboxd, which is movies that I would rather spend four hours watching Lawrence of Arabia again than watch these movies again. That's a good list. What What's in that list? Uh, there's a couple, uh, who here's, here's the hot take of, of the year. Uh, the Godfather part two is in it, <laughs> which is uh, a movie that we will be covering later on this season yeah. of the show. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, the Irishman Oh, definitely yeah. is on the list. Um, but yeah, I just, one of the other things that jumped out at me about Lawrence of Arabia is like, it was made in 1962. There's a distinct acting style that goes to about the mid sixties, I'd say. Yeah, longer um, for for women who couldn't really shake it. But you mean that kind of transatlantic, transatlantic, really a little bit over the top, over the top, but also Cary less Grant, emotional. Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So most of the time, that's why I don't like earlier movies. It's not oh well, well that in the pacing, but it's it's not that I don't appreciate the craft. It's I feel like the acting is not as genuine. Um, And so that's one of the things I liked about Lawrence of Arabia that jumped out at me is it didn't have that same acting style that a lot of other things have where they don't feel like people, they feel like characters. Hmm. Um, Granted, like it's British, it's they're British soldiers for the most part, and it takes place in 19, like the early, the mid 19 teens, like 1918. Um, and so they're going to have a distinctly different characteristic from Americans in 2022. Um, so like, I, I get that, but it, it, it felt more natural than most other things in that time. Um, that's one of the things that I like about it. Yeah, I definitely picked up on that in seeing it for the first time. The The fact that, yes, it's very grand. It's very big. It's it's an epic. It was a roadshow release. It has an intermission. It's four hours long. All of that. But it feels still very intimate. And it feels very much... I mean, it's, it feels like a character piece as mm-hmm. much as it is this big epic that's covering, you know, years and years and this great war and all these other things. It feels very intimate and very, uh, 
very personal, which I was watching another historical epic that came out recently, The Last Duel um, with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Adam Driver. And I watched it the day after we watched Lawrence of Arabia together. And the difference was really astounding. Like The Last Duel is a good movie. It's well, it's well made. It's, you know, well written. But I, I kept feeling like it lacked a little bit of that even just the visual intimacy that makes Lawrence of Arabia work on a smaller screen. Like I, I think I told you multiple times while we were watching the movie, I would love to see this movie projected on like the biggest screen possible and let mm-hmm. it just engulf everything. But it on the TV in my living room, it still worked. It still is effective. Peter O'Toole's performance is still, which is something I want to talk about later, but it's still so effective and the movie still works on such a, such a visceral level. And I think it's because you can tell that David lean as much as he's shooting to get these really intense visuals and things that you would never see in a movie at all. He's still concerned primarily with the character and your connection to him, which makes everything even better. And then to add to that, it's wrapped up in maybe one of the most beautiful packagings I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> this is one of the most well-shot movies I've ever seen. Yeah, you talked about that. Almost every scene you found a specific shot that stood out to you as being perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and... And all of the little details of it all, like the way that certain, you know, people were framed within frames. Uh, I read that a really major influence for David Lean on this film was The Searchers, John Ford's Western. And that movie is known for these like frame within frame shots, you know, the cowboy through the door, you know seeing him come in and that influence is very evident on this movie because there's there's so many things where he's using elements of the production design to frame the characters in a certain way um and he's using this depth you talked about it when we were watching it that there's a lot of really deep focus shots which is not something you see a lot now because everything kind of is pushing for like how open can we be mm-hmm. in order to shoot this shot and still like kind of be in focus but there's all this deep focus all of these really really deep shots that are beautifully framed and he's using doors and sand dunes and other things to frame within the frame and you're seeing things happen even further away in the background and he's using foreground background um midground all all the way through the film i think there was a point that it kind of hit me that it's very easy to look back on other like older films and be like, ah, they didn't know too much. And obviously we're better now, but there, there were all of the things that make up a good shot 
1962 for David Lean and his camera, make up a good shot now. Mm-hmm. The, the same things that when you get to a cinematography class in college or high school or wherever you, you take it, you're told get a, get a foreground element because it's going to add depth, get lights in the background in different colors because that's going to add depth. All of those things are on full display in this movie the entire time. And what makes a good shot hasn't changed. I remember specifically, uh, there are two shots specifically that I remember struck you especially hard. Um, there's one where one of Lawrence's servants is sitting on a sand dune mm. and yep. it's positioned to where almost perfectly diagonally through the frame is the edge of the sand dune they're on and they're down in the bottom right corner. And in the distance behind them, you can see the rest of the camp lit differently, but there are, it's it's darker, but there are lights down there and you can see it's perfectly cut through diagonally um and then the other is the camel uh when they're coming up to the suez canal uh you see through torn screens Mm -hmm. in the holes of the screen are exactly where the camel's head stops or where lawrence walks up Right. And I want to go back to that for a second. The first shot that the thing that impressed me the most about that shot is not only is the frame like perfectly cut through and it's you you see all the depth. The servant is perfectly placed in that slash of a sand dune. Mm-hmm. He's not sticking out over and it's not too busy where you're losing your actor but it's not so awkward that you're getting like weird negative space. He is perfectly framed. And the point about the screens, what I, what I really loved about that was that those holes in the screen didn't have to be there. You could still see the, the people and you could get the information that you're, you're, you need to get for that shot. But the fact that there's the hole there creates just enough visual interest and puts them in just the right spot. And it's, it, it really is just a wonderful detail. So I talked a lot about that. What for you kind of refer returning back to this movie, um, for the what second, third time, second time, second uh, time. I mean, parts of it, third time, full thing, second time. Okay. So, really a second time like what's hitting you what hit you differently i really enjoyed just taking in the size of the production Mm -hmm. so like watching every scene that has hundreds of horses and horsemen and taking in the scenes that have hundreds of camps and like just this like just the the scope of it all was massive and it's not like i mean obviously some of it was probably shot on a sound stage in england or california but like 
there are some shots that are not shot on a soundstage. <laughs> They're shot in the desert somewhere. Maybe not in the Middle East. I know some of it was, um, and some of it wasn't, but like, that's still in the desert. And like, nowadays, you can, um, you can cover stuff up with CGI. You can, like, with a, a long, there are some shots in it that are, um, like, ungodly focal lengths. I mean, um, well, and, like, people, like, the subjects are miles away. Yeah, miles away. And you can see all around them so far away, which meant they had to communicate to them from that distance, which is was a lot harder back then also. Um you couldn't just text them and you had to keep the like the shade tents out of the way because you can't just mask that out. I mean, you could, there are ways to do that, but I imagine they probably didn't do that because it was more complicated than just masking it out in post. So like those, the effort, the actors and the, um, even the second unit people who are people too, <laughs> um, like the the commitment to those long shots in the desert is just astounding and then that's not even counting when it's like hundreds of people from that distance that you're having to coordinate with to make sure they're doing everything right and make sure they know when to start and make sure the camera has everything and it's just ridiculous there are so many long long shots in that that are just a, a nightmare logistically <laughs> speaking as a uh, erstwhile video and film producer I, it is such a feat that i mean it's a feat that a movie like this happened period it mm-hmm. i'm glad it happened then because there's no way knowing the film industry now that this would happen now. Like there's just you, there's so many things that I think that not, not in the sense of like it would never happen, but to have a large scale production that costs as much as this movie does, that's not based on any sort of IP that's not a temple film. It's not the 32nd, MCU movie it's I mean it's a true life story but mostly it's an original film and it's four hours long and I mean it can never people wouldn't see it you know it doesn't play well Mm -hmm. on Netflix it doesn't play well on Apple TV plus so the fact that this movie exists is I'm very grateful for yeah it, it is it is wonderful well, because even movies like uh, in 2021, uh, Dune, like it's a remake of a movie based on a book. That's so incredibly popular. That's incredibly popular. So like it's it's not the same type of story. Like it's it gets up there on on terms of scale. Yeah. Um, and it is it is a phenomenal achievement and mm-hmm. like I don't want to dismiss that. Right. 
but it's still but, an established IP right. that they are do like it's it's not that like it's not that Lawrence of Arabia couldn't be made today. It's that it right. wouldn't get made today. Exactly. Exactly. That's the that's the difference. The audience just isn't there. Mm-hmm. But going back to just that length point, it's I I never found myself checking the clock and wondering if the movie was over yet that that didn't happen for me i don't i don't know about you in this version of it or in this viewing of it but the only time i i felt that kind of like inner clock was around when i knew i knew there was an an intermission and i knew it was about to show up mm-hmm. and and so i was like oh is this where they're gonna end it oh is this where they're gonna no oh, oh okay there it is so that's the only point in this entire movie that I really felt that because it, other than that is just four hours and it carries you the whole way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, I, I think it's totally effective. The other thing I think was totally effective was Peter tools performance. I think I told you that as well before we, um, or right after we finished the movie, man, mm-hmm. what, what a phenomenal, phenomenal performance in this mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, it his his performance grew as the character grew, which is exactly how it's supposed to work. Like it's it starts pretty subtle, pretty not not as expressive. He's more reserved, he's kind of quirky, but as Lawrence gains confidence the performance gets bigger. The performance gets cockier. The performance gets, it matches the growth of the character. And, and I think the thing that really stuck out to me the most is that it felt like O'Toole was very aware of just how big his face was going to be on screen. So this is one of his first major performances, really his kind of big coming out party as an actor in film. And in film, right. He had made a couple smaller films, but nothing, I mean, not that anything is at the well, scale. Yeah, and he was, he was, he was, he was a huge stage actor. Right. Right. But this is his first big, like international production and you, I felt like not that you could see the inner workings necessarily because it is a very seamless performance, but it's like he knew when, he, when the camera's in close up, he's the whole screen. And when you're projecting this 70 millimeter image in these in the roadshow movie palaces where this movie would have been seen originally. You can tell that he's aware of that. And he's, he's not doing the thing that you get with a lot of stage actors and even actors of this time period anyway, where a lot of things aren't shot in close up, where it's very big and you're projecting to the person in the back of the room and you're trying to get attention and you got to kind of fight for it. He's so, and I, and I think this is why it's a different kind of performance than what you were kind of used to 
um, or the kind of performances you don't like that happen mm-hmm. in those older films, he's so like aware of where the camera is and that it's right up on him. And he is toning everything down and channeling it all, all in his face or his movement, whatever the moment requires. Uh, I don't think, I don't think the movie, I mean, very clearly the movie doesn't work if you miscast Lawrence. It's Lawrence of Arabia and they nailed it with him. I mean, and it feels like funny to say that now, 50, 60, <laughs> how many years we are removed? 60, I guess 60. this would be. Yeah. Yeah. 60 years removed from this film. But when you look at it in context and like not having the fact that like not a lot of people had seen him yet and David Lean is kind of going out on a limb to cast this theater actor who's only been in one or two movies in, in his, uh, I mean, millions and like what at the time, almost an unheard of number to make that film um, as far as the budget. And he's putting it all on this guy's shoulders and he just, he knocks it out of the park. Yeah. This was a 15 million estimated $15 million budget in the sixties. Right. I, I think that the, that number is like adjusted is close to, 200 million maybe almost 300 million like for context avengers endgame cost 300 million so in terms of scale that's what you're working with in 1962 in the desert not on a soundstage in georgia so do you have any kind of wrapping up thoughts that you would just we didn't necessarily have space for that. You just kind of want to state for the record, your feelings on Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, I love this movie. Um, hang around with me for any, any time. And you will probably hear me reference it. Not necessarily re- like quote it, but like make a reference to Lawrence of Arabia. Um, uh, people speaking from experience, me. speaking from experience. That is, that is true. Yeah. Uh, it's a great movie and it's, I, I, as a pretentious film person, like that, I like it because of its status symbol in snobby film person world kind of validates Um, your, uh, chosen interests. Yeah. It valid, it validates that it validates my, some of my, uh, different, uh, hot takes on other movies, (laughs) Like uh, the Godfather part two, like the Godfather part two, like, well, at least I like Lawrence of Arabia, um, which is a longer movie. So you can get off my back with that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I don't just like it because of the status, the status symbol that it gives me, but I like that I get, I get a sort of self-satisfaction from enjoying it. Um, Seth, did you did you have any big 
things yeah watching this movie i'm the the thing that i mean other than obviously the other stuff we talked about it i found it very accessible which i was a little worried about because it is almost four hours long and so i was a little worried about it is it gonna be like like and like talking about it on a podcast, is it going to be the kind of thing where we're like a couple of dudes who just like movies? So of course we like Lawrence of Arabia, but it really is accessible. It really is. I mean, obviously you need the time commitment, but mm. it it's a movie I feel like anyone can kind of connect with and watch and find interesting. I mean, obviously if you don't find British period pieces interesting you probably won't find Lawrence of Arabia interesting but if you do find that interesting then it's it's a pretty uh it's an easy movie to kind of slip into it definitely has its own world and has its own thing that is really really effective so let's take a quick break and then we are gonna come back And we'll talk about a movie that is significantly less accessible (laughs) and talk about Terrence Malick's 2011 film, Tree of Life. Hey, what's up? This is Seth Scruggs, host of Rewatch, that show that you're listening to right now. And if you like this show, there's also a good chance that you would like our YouTube channel. You can find it, Mark Spots the X Productions, on YouTube. There's a link in our show notes. And over there, we have short films and behind-the-scenes content and a bunch of other stuff that we have planned for the rest of this year. You can go over there and subscribe. That really helps us out and helps other people find our work. And if you like this show and you want to help other people find our work, you can follow the show, give us a review and a rating, and that really helps other people find our work as well. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, Zach, we're back, and we're going to talk about The Tree of Life. This is the 2011 Palme d'Or winning film uh, from Terrence Malick. It is about the origins and meanings of life uh, by way of a middle-aged man's childhood memories of his family living in 1950s Texas. Uh what a mundane way to talk about this movie. It is so much bigger than that. Um, this was Terrence Malick's kind of long awaited uh, return. He takes forever to make a movie and kind of came back and blew everyone away with this movie in 2011. And this was, this was my choice. Mm-hmm. So, this being your choice, what makes this a rewatch for you? There's it, the words I used were rich text. It's there's just, there's so much to keep digging into in this movie, whether it's biblical allusions or, you know, an entire meditation on the creation of the universe or the nature of grief or suffering, the way of nature, the way of grace. Like there's so much going on there 
as far as like the ideas, which I think should be expected from Terrence Malick. He is a philosopher. Like that's his kind of first career was as a philosopher. And then he decided to become a filmmaker. So I feel like there's plenty of ideas there, but then like also everything that's in this movie, everything goes against the accepted things that like make a movie cinematic. So there's tons of voiceover that is kind of whispered throughout the the movie. There's jump cuts and this kind of erratic, really poetic, which is, I hate using the word poetic to describe (laughs) movies. It's almost, almost like saying lyrical. I hate that, but I don't know. I don't know another word to describe it. It's very impressionistic. It's very much rooted in someone's memory. And so it, there's not, there is a narrative and that's something I want to talk with you about a little bit. There is a narrative, but it is not nearly as straightforward and typical as you might find in most modern movies. The kind of things that like, like if someone turned in this screenplay or the a written version of this movie, because this is nothing probably like the screenplay that was written because that's how Malik works. But if I wrote what ended up on the screen and turned it into a screenwriting professor, they would probably tell me that it sucks and that I could never make this movie. It's slow and very, very carefully paced. And uh, it like that shouldn't work. That isn't something that should make sense. And then one another thing that stuck with me visually is a lot of it is wide angle lenses, mm-hmm. lots of really, really wide shots or close-ups with a wide angle lens that are that have all this deep focus that we were just talking about with Lawrence of Arabia. It that that's like the ant like if you went onto YouTube and looked up someone telling you how to shoot cinematic B-roll. Which, please don't. Please don't do that. Just, no. But if you did, they would tell you the opposite of how this movie is shot. In every way, shape, and form, they would tell you to do the opposite of what this movie does. So, now that I've ranted a little bit, on your first watch, we didn't watch this one together. We watched Lawrence of Arabia together, but we did not watch this one together. So, and we haven't really talked about it. That's true. So I'm very interested to see, to hear what your thoughts are. So I go back and forth between thinking, wow, that makes perfect sense. I think all of that works super, super well. And what's the bit with the dinosaurs? <laughs> um, like, I, I, I get it, but like... But also why? Yeah, like, I... Because I think to me, the the two... Well, like, on, on first watching it, I thought it was so beautiful. Uh, the actors did such a good job with all of their performances. Um, 
specifically uh the kid um mm-hmm. did a phenomenal job with the subtlety of loving his mother and hating his father and um not knowing how he was hurting his his other brothers Mm -hmm. and that's a that's hunter mccracken uh the kid that you're talking about he plays Mm -hmm. jack and he's not acted in anything since this this movie um so really just hasn't had much of a career outside of this which Mm -hmm. is kind of crazy because like you can talk about brad pitt but like you're not gonna unless brad pitt gives a bad performance it's not really unexpected for him to give a good performance um but like the fact that this kid had like no acting credits came in and was the emotional crux and weak link of a mountain of a director's like inspir not inspirational um i mean it's like his magnum opus yeah like like this is the piece that i think in 50 years terrence malick will be like known for like yeah he did those other things but he did Tree of Life. Um, one of my professors in college, his favorite movie is The Tree of Life. And I can see why. Like, it's so beautiful. Um, and I want to clarify, calling Hunter the weakest link is not is not at all dogging his performance. It's just a straight up like he didn't have much experience and then he was thrust into this deep role as a child as a child actor like it's hard for it's hard for adults without any acting experience who have life experience to draw on to perform super deep complex roles let alone a child who doesn't have a bunch a bunch of depth they can draw from their own life. Um, so that's I think incredible. Um, well, and being I go back in this f- situation where mm-hmm. he, you don't really like. I would imagine that there's not a lot of structure in the way that Terrence Malick films a movie, especially one like this. So now, so not only is he unsure of like what he's doing as a child actor who's never acted before in a scene with Brad Pitt, he also like, he may not have a direction of like where the movie's going. And that's, that's such a, and yet, so to deliver something so solid and so good out of this, I think you're right. Just Mm -hmm. amazing. I go back and forth between comparing this movie to boyhood and comparing it to 2001 a space odyssey because <laughs> for a while so about 30 no 20 30 minutes in i was like oh okay this is this i my reaction i guess not my reaction my assumption was okay so it's telling the story of this family and then okay 
we're jumping to the end of the world. And then we're back mm-hmm. to the beginning of the world. So I, I for, misunderstood that it was just to the beginning of the world. For anyone who doesn't know, has not seen Tree of Life, I think it's funny that you're listening to this podcast still. But if you haven't seen Tree of Life, um, for the, the first 20 to 30 minutes of the movie, it kind of shows you this really tragic event in the life of this family. And then it jumps to the it jumps forward to see one of the kids from this family uh, in the present day, kind of living his life, being in the modern world. And then as the characters deal with the grief of this event, it jumps backward to the beginning of the universe and essentially starts over again and brings it it zooms out and shows you the beginnings of the world and dinosaurs and all of this stuff and then zooms back in on this family so that's what Jack is referring to i think it's also funny that he did that and also made terrence malick made a separate movie called voyage of time which is Basically that. So that's actually a documentary, mostly mm-hmm. including footage from the creation of the creation sequence from Tree okay. of Life and based on a lot of the research that they did for that scene. So okay. they, they are they are interconnected. They okay. are there. It's not two distinct things. Yeah. Um, but like I go back and forth between comparing it to those two movies because it felt like it was just going to be a bunch of different time periods. Mm. Like I, I had very little knowledge of the movie. I didn't read the summary. The most I had is Brad Pitt's in it. uh, Sean Penn's in it. Me obnoxiously talking about it for a year, trying to get you to watch it. Yeah. Uh, and so I, when, when they, when it switched to that, I thought, okay, so this is going to be five 30 minute segments that seem completely disconnected, but are connected through the passage of time. Like that's how they're connected. And I was like, okay, I get it. I, I wouldn't have made that choice, but I get it. I can go along with that. And then it jumps back to the family for the rest of the movie. (laughs) And that's what threw me. I was like, wait a minute. We're not going to get more dinosaurs. (laughs) I was a little disappointed because they were cute dinosaurs. Um, And like, I, I would, that's the thing that this is, like not a specific detail that you guys needed to know, but like that kept me from putting it at five stars. Mm -hmm. Like I, um, according to Letterboxd, not according to a 10 star. So like five (laughs) out of five, I gave it a four and a half out of five instead of a five out of five. Um, just because I feel like more or less of the creation of time would have made more sense in the story but at the same time like i don't want any less of the family right in it so like i don't like i i would not ask that he switch out 
the family scenes for more dinosaurs or like something in the future. But it just, it felt a little strange. Um, Looking back, it feels kind of like somebody changed the channels while you're watching and then got (laughs) bored after 10 minutes and changed it back. Yeah, I can see that as a, as a, as a point. Um, Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that sequence is easily the most divisive. Now, this is an incredibly divisive movie. Mm-hmm. Shock, like insanely divisive for a lot of people. But I think that uh, the the reason that specifically that that this movie is so divisive is that sequence um, because it is it, it does kind of feel like that. And I think, I mean, for me, returning on a second time, being able to kind of think about it and process it, um, or second or third time seeing it, I, I felt like I knew a little bit more of what was going on. And I've, I've also read up on it. And after finishing it the first time, I was like, I got to figure everything out <laughs> about what this movie is trying to say. And knowing more of that, knowing more of the perspective, knowing more of what's going on, I felt like I understood the creation sequence, not in a sense like I had to figure it out to figure out like what makes it tick, but I have my like interpretation of what it's like, I have my interpretation of what that scene and what that sequence kind of represents and means. Mm-hmm. And the thing, the thing that, the frustrating thing is it's so beautiful, but I'm sitting there like, what? <laughs> like I, and like, I, I just, it's so beautiful. Like all of ev- every single shot of this movie is beautiful. Like he, he uses B roll in a way like the B-roll in this movie is so beautiful and so crisp and vibrant that it's basically a roll. Yep. Like he turns nature into a character. And it's not not in a like oh all it's all trees and stuff like it's it's like every aspect of nature at some point is a character in this which i think lends to like it's not i like i i don't know how terrence malick titles movies but i think there's a an important connection a movie's title has to have with the content and so like it's not boyhood where it's about this boy He's the main character. It's not 2001 A Space Odyssey where it's about coming from the past to the future. It's the tree of life. Life is not just humans. Mm -hmm. It's everything. And so everything except man-made stuff. But like, like everything that has life on some level is shown in this movie 
as a character, which I think is astounding. And that's a visual theme throughout the movie where Sean Penn's character, who is an older version of the character we were talking about earlier, uh, Hunter McCracken's Jack, he lives in a very modern world with hard edges and metal and glass and very, very structured, very hard lines. And a lot of the stuff from the past is this organic, not necessarily like everything is like curves or something, but it's warmer tones. It's, it's softer. Cause like in the fifties houses yeah. were made out of wood, right? Everything, right. more things were made out of wood. Right. And so you see, there's a shot of a tree in the middle of this city. And it's one of those shots you were talking about. That's just kind of there essentially is if, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, that's just, well, that's a nice shot. But in Malik's case, he's really underlining his point. You know, here's this modern world and there's something missing. And it's weird that this tree is here, but it's growing and life continues. And I think, you know, your title point, yeah, trees and are really vital but in that, you're also getting the idea that like he's not just capturing the just like the most important three days of this family's life, and or you know the most important day of this hero's journey. You're getting, and I and I think this is where the creation sequence comes in. You're getting the whole of what it means to be alive in this kind of microcosm of a, of this 1950s American family. And so it places, you know, he shows you here's creation, here's the universe, here's all of this. But in this microcosm, in this small form, here's the same thing. All these other things are still happening in, even in this little unit. And I think that nature is so much part of that. And he's kind of pointing out like all of that revolves, all of that is happening in this unit too. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things that uh, threw me was that the story of the family isn't even like the progression of this kid's life. It's it's a a snapshot of this time. Um, for the majority for the majority of the movie, it's a snapshot of time where it's it's not. It feels like okay, why aren't we moving on? But what it's showing is like life is about the what was before having an impact on what's coming next. And so you see, you see the the cycle of life in this kid's life, um, where you see the influence his dad has on him, and then when his dad is away, you see him influencing his life 
pretty much a small, a younger version of his dad since his dad is gone. Um, and so like that shows like this movie shows nature and nurture um, in a way that a lot of movies don't. Yeah. Uh, one thing that this movie gets critiqued on a lot is that nothing happens where there's not really a solid narrative. I think this movie is in probably my favorite letterbox list, which is nothing happens. Yeah. But the vibes. Uh, <laughs> so I, what I was curious about when I was watching this movie again, uh, I, I really latched on to the narrative and what was happening and what story is there. And yeah, it's, it's looser there. It's playing with structure. It's playing with conventions, but I found there to be a pretty consistent and compelling narrative, but I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Like, is that just me having seen this movie before projecting or did you kind of feel like there was something to latch on to? I definitely, I, I didn't feel like it was super um, placid in the story. Like I, I not as much happened. Like it's not, it's definitely not a plot based mm. film like Lawrence of Arabia. Um, it's a character piece, but I th- like, I, I didn't feel at any point like, Oh, nothing's happening. Like I felt, I felt the story and like I could follow the story of this family and this boy. Um, yeah, surprisingly, I actually didn't have a problem with that. Gotcha. Uh, I wanted to shout out, um, the, a couple of performances, uh, from this, uh, you mentioned that we don't have to shout out Brad Pitt's performance, but I've made a commitment to always shout out Brad Pitt's performance. <laughs> uh, no, I, it, Brad Pitt is one of my favorite performers because he's, especially in the last little bit, because he's kind of moved into this phase where he really only acts in movies that either he really wants to be in like Tarantino calls him up and says, be in my movie. And he says, sure. Or he's producing a movie and that it's a story that he believes in and wants to get off the ground. And the way it gets off the ground is if he's in it, mm-hmm. uh, George Clooney is doing something very similar um, in his career. But so Brad Pitt did produce this movie and that's, that's an element of it. And what I, what I love is that it's not a, star it's not a star performance you know it's not it's not showy in a way that something like say fight club another movie that we'll be talking about soon Mm. is or oceans the oceans trilogy where he's just kind of being charming and he's brad pitt and doing his thing it's a very complex and nuanced performance. And I kind of pick up things each time um, that he manages to have this soft side to this very hard character. And it's something that so 
delicate to try to balance. And I think he does a wonderful job of it. I think it's the best performance in the movie and probably my favorite Brad Pitt performance of all time. I also want to give a shout out to uh, the cinematographer, uh, Emmanuel Lebeski. The camera is just such a big part of this film. And the thing that I noticed this time was this balance. And this is on the like 15 editors that worked on this project and Terrence Malick, but also I think Manuel Lebeski where there's a mix of these really elaborate crane shots and helicopter shots and massive set piece kind of moments completely mixed in with handheld camera, just capturing kids playing in a bathtub that are these very intimate small moments. And I think that's on, I mean, obviously on so many of the technical people, but really I I just, what a, it's such a good balance that I think elevates the movie in such a, such a beautiful way. Those are my kind of closing thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else that you want to kind of add to the discussion. It's not really closing thoughts, but something I found out is uh, this was Ty Sheridan's uh, debut. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, come on. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like how, how awesome would that be to have your debut? I mean, I guess it's not just his because like hunter right, too right, but like right. like to be a consistently working actor and to be able to say yeah my first my first gig it's no big deal uh, it was this it was this movie made by terrence malick which first of all is a bombshell <laughs> and then oh yeah wow that's awesome what movie was it the tree of life yep like to and be able to say to work with that spielberg and so many other major filmmakers and his, he's kind of a rising star as yeah. far as things go now. Um, yeah. It's just incredible. What a, what a, what a, what a, thing what a to flex. <laughs> and I think, I think, I think we should end the show there with you, with you just saying what a flex. <laughs> Um, Zach, it's good to be back doing this. Yeah, this is. I'm glad we're we're back at it. Yep, this is this is really fun. Uh, this show is produced by Mark Spots CX Productions. That's me and Zach. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Letterboxd at Seth Scruggs, and you can find Zach on Instagram and Letterboxd at. You can find me on Letterboxd at Zachary Vaughn. And on Instagram, uh, Zachary is thinking, I hope. We hope that you will join us next week as we talk about our favorite depraved maniac, David Fincher. And we're, we'll have a couple of his films that we'll be talking about next week. Until then, this has been Rewatch, the show about movies we love and movies we haven't seen yet. See you, Zach. See you, Seth.